everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Brandley Lectures podcast. I'm Tal Forkang, I'm your host. I'm lucky to be joined in studio by AEI adjunct fellow Lyman Stone, who's also a fellow at the Institute for Family Studies and a widely read blogger on migration, population dynamics, regional economics, and a lot more. Lyman joins us today to discuss a 2013 Bradley lecture from Jonathan Last, who at the time was a senior writer at the Weekly Standard of Blessed Memory and author of the book, What to Expect When No One's Expecting. Lyman, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be here. So I wanted to open up by asking you a question about your own history and journey uh, as a budding d- demographer. Uh, ha- how did you become interested in demographics and uh, population dynamics? Uh, and what kind of training did you have to go through? Uh, so actually, I was working in tax policy. Uh, and I kind of I drew the short straw, I guess. I was assigned the uh, taxes and migration uh, topic. So I said, oh, gosh. I got to learn about this. So I uh, started taking, uh, I was in my graduate program at the time while working at a think tank. And I, uh, so I started taking courses in migration studies and this stuff. And so you start learning about migration. You say, well, if we're talking about migration, we're really talking about population. You say, well, if we're talking about population, we should probably also talk about, you know, births and deaths. And then you're in the whole sort of demographic uh, nexus here with the, the whole picture. So I kind of walked backwards into it from tax policy. Um, I don't really do tax policy anymore. I just do the demographic side. Uh, but uh, that's, that's originally what got me into it. Let's turn to the lecture. 2013 lecture from Jonathan Last on the topic of his book, What to Expect When No One's Expecting. You released a paper for AEI about 10 months ago called Declining Fertility in America. What was the thrust of your paper? How, if at all, did it differ from the lecture we're about to hear? What changes generally does your own research reflect uh, maybe that have developed over the last so years? So when, when Jonathan's book came out, uh, birth rates were around 1.92, I think, uh, or expected birth rates. We'd expect that a woman beginning her reproductive years in, what was it, 2013 when the book came out, uh, would have about 1.92 kids. Uh, today, that same woman, if she's coming of age now, we'd expect her to have about 1.72 kids. So fertility has continued so to decline. So a lot. Yeah. So in fact, I actually feel like um, it always surprises me that that uh, Jonathan's not out there more more frequently being like, hey, I told you so. Um, I would be much less gracious if I were him. Um, but so this, this trend has continued. It's intensified. Um, there are more people talking about it now than there were when he kind of made something of an opening salvo on the topic. And, uh, and so there's, there's a lot more debate about what's causing it uh, and what can be done about it. So in addition to economic concerns about raising children and cultural norms around raising children, one of the major concerns, especially with the younger generation, is the environmental impact of having lots of children, uh, to the extent that at the Democratic candidate's town hall on the climate emergency, a lot of time and effort was spent on discussing having fewer children, policies to keep people in the United States and elsewhere from having more children. Now, is there a middle ground between environmental concern and pro-fertility policy, or are they destined to be locked in eternal struggle against each other? There is not a middle ground. 
you have two choices for the future. A future of more humans and a cleaner environment, or a future of less humans and a filthier environment. That is, you can either this have babies... This is fantastic. Baby, you, ex- I mean, it is, actually, but... A win-win. My, so, here's, here's the way this works. Um, and I've written extensively about this, so I'm not going to bore everyone with the math, but basically, no amount of population control, uh, no, even if we implemented a one-child policy in every country on Earth... That will not get you the amount of emissions reductions that you need in order to forestall what the IPCC is IPCCC. I forget how many C's there are. Um, the the consensus scientific view: population control cannot get you to the emissions reduction needed to forestall catastrophic global warming. There's absolutely no plausible policy at all that can get you there. By the time those kids who aren't born would be growing up and having their uh, most emissions intense period of their life. We are well beyond the point of no return. Um, We have lost the coral reefs. Like it's over game set match humanity lost. Now on the other side of the equation, there is a ton of research on innovation. What causes innovation? What drives it? And a big part of the answer, not the only part, but a big part of it is demography. That is more people, more innovation. And not just more innovation, more innovation per person. Population growth, growing market size, eases specialization. It creates an environment where risk-takingness is more rewarded uh, because there's more growth opportunities. It encourages all sorts of a flowering of human potential, which is to say um, population control cannot get you where you need to go in terms of forestalling catastrophic environmental consequences in the future, if you believe the models. If you don't believe the models, this isn't a problem at all. Now, on the other hand, the only way to prevent serious uh, negative consequences in these models is with innovation. That is, is to reduce the amount of carbon emissions or other pollutants uh, per dollar of global consumption. This is the only path forward. Any serious uh, climate change uh, advocate will tell you that it doesn't matter how many fewer paper straw, how many fewer plastic straws you use, if we're still burning coal to produce the power to make the paper straw, right? So you need innovation. Innovation is the only way forward, uh, which means the whole the whole strategy here is about is about just goosing the rate of innovation as quickly as possible. Is getting as much expansion in potential energy sources that are perhaps lower carbon or even negative carbon um, as we can get. So that means that far from being the problem, population growth is part of the solution. Uh, That a a world where markets are not growing is a world where innovators uh, aren't making money. And so, I mean, think of it in the very simplest way. Sorry, I'm talking about this a lot, but when population declines in an area and you have a power plant, you extend the life of the power plant, right? You say, well, we're not going to build a whole new power plant for a place where population is declining. We're just going to kind of modify this one to extend its life 10 or 20 years. When population is growing, what do you do? You build new power plants with excess capacity to handle expected uh, closures of older plants in the area, right? So population decline seriously retards the pace at which we're able to support uh, changeover in energy generation technology, which is, this is one of the most important parts of this whole equation. So I think really just at a very practical level, when, when Bernie Sanders says that he wants to use taxpayer dollars to subsidize the, uh, elimination of the lives of third world children, not only is this uh, a form of wicked colonialism, it's also literally backwards, 
This is the worst possible strategy here. I mean, China's building these coal plants all around uh, the world, right, uh, to, uh, to basically subsidize their coal plant construction indus- uh, industry. If population does not grow in the places where those coal plants are built, then you will have a legacy system where the only form of power generation that country has is coal, and everything will be built around that. It will be very difficult to transition them to something else. But if their population and their economy is growing rapidly, you can say, okay, yes, you've got this coal plant, but look, over here we're going to build something else. And then eventually the something else will outcompete the coal plant. We'll turn now to the lecture from Jonathan Last, Prophet of Doom, and Lyman and I will be back in just a few minutes to discuss the culture and policy surrounding fertility and birth rates. Only cranks and hysterics run around shouting that we're doomed, we're doomed. So I will merely suggest, sotto voce, that the demographic evidence from both America and the rest of the world suggests that it is possible that we might be doomed. So let us start with the basics. The only number I'm really going to ask you to remember from tonight is the fertility rate, and that number is 2.1. That is our golden number because it is the number that the average woman needs to bear during her lifetime if a society is going to maintain a stable population. When the fertility rate is above 2.1, population grows. When it is below 2.1, population shrinks. In America today, our total fertility rate sits below the 2.1 mark where it has hovered with only slight fluctuations since roughly 1972. In that time, it has dipped as low as 1.7, and it has been over the 2.1 mark only twice. And it's not just America. Ben Wattenberg, who Carlin introduced, uh, and who is one of my heroes, by the way, for his work on all of this, uh, Mr. Wattenberg was the first person to notice that Western countries had begun a cataclysmic drop in their fertility rates, such that by the end of the 1970s, every Western nation on Earth was below replacement. In Italy, for instance, if their fertility rate holds where it is today, they will lose a third of their population by the end of the century. In Japan, the fertility rate is so low that the country is already shrinking and will lose more than half its population by 2100. Around the globe, with only a few exceptions, the story is the same, varying only by degrees. Fertility decline began in the West, but it quickly spread throughout the world. A generation ago, the world's fertility rate was 6 Today, it's 2.5 and still dropping. In the developing world, the fertility rates are generally higher than they are here in the first world, but their rate of decline is, in fact, steeper. And what all of this adds up to is that most projections see world population peaking sometime after 2050, and by the end of this century, the number of people in our little blue ball of mud will be shrinking for the first time since the plague ravaged Europe. So why worry about this possibly, maybe, perhaps dooming us. Well, we have seen global declines in population twice before. Once was during the Black Death. The other was after the fall of the Roman Empire during a period that we colloquially refer to as the Dark Ages. Population contractions, even at the individual societal level, are rarely attended by peace and prosperity. As the great Italian demographer Mario Levi Bacci notes, societies with shrinking populations have almost always been marked by backwards economies and backwards economies do not promote stability and peace. A few people today, particularly on the environmentalist left, believe that population contraction is wonderful and long overdue. They hold fast to what I consider the most five dangerous words in the English language, that this time will be different. Uh, What they argue is that losing people will be a boon to whoever is left and will help heal the planet by stopping global warming, or ecological degradation, or whatever the other environmental problems of the week happen to be. 
and look, I don't mean to poke fun, they could be right, but the ill effects of population contraction seem much more likely. And counterintuitively, since increased wealth has historically led to innovation and conservation, population contraction could result in poverty, creating new environmental problems. Consider for a moment what happens to societies with low fertility rates. The first effect is that the age structure of the population inverts, so that you have more old people than young people. This is manageable, so long as your older folks are all still working, but once they retire, you suddenly have more pensioners than you do workers paying for the pensions. So either you cut your support for the elderly, or you increase taxes on young workers, either of which makes it harder for them to afford having children, and thus puts even more strain on the entitlement system for the next generation, and then the one after that. As you can see, even under the best case scenario, where you have a stable political order and no social instability, shrinking populations make the welfare state at the very least, a dicey proposition. Then there's industry. Advanced economies are based on innovation rather than efficiency. And throughout history, most innovators and entrepreneurs have tended to be under the age of 40. Now think for a moment about flows of capital. Young people invest capital aggressively because they're trying to grow their savings and they have a long time horizon. These high risk and high reward investments are what seed innovation and high savings rates make sustainable economic growth possible. But as a society ages and shrinks, the capital pools dry up. Because older people don't invest aggressively, and more to the point, they don't invest so much as shift their savings into drawdown mode. So the engine of capital investment, which spurs both technological and financial progress, will slowly grind to a halt. And all of this ignores the mere day-to-day -day economy. Because when you age structure inverts, there follows a general decline in demand for goods and services because the only thing older people consume in increasing quantities, I offer with respect, uh, is healthcare. Now, what I've just sketched out is the best case scenario. Mere economic stagnation that greatly weakens technological innovation, stifles economic progress, and makes the stability of the modern welfare state questionable. It does not take a great deal of imagination to come up with less rosy scenarios. Suppose, for instance, that China, which will soon have just two workers to support each retiree and no pension system in place, were to destabilize. Well, America would have a difficult time doing anything about that because it's difficult to project force around the world when your country has the age profile of Florida. Fewer young people means fewer soldiers, too. All of which is why, as Mark Stein put it a few years ago, there's no precedent in human history for prolonged peace and prosperity in the face of population decline. So yes, this time could be different but there's no real reason to think that it will be. So the first question we have then is, what happened? How did we wind up in a place where no first world nation is able to reproduce itself? This is a big, important question, and the answers are just as numerous as the stars in their heavens. I will touch on just a few of them. Some of the causes are the obvious effects of the evolution of modern life. For instance, over the last two centuries, the infant mortality rate has dropped to incredibly low levels, which in turn drove down the fertility rate. Another driver has been the West's increasing levels of urbanization. For centuries, people living in rural areas have had higher fertility rates than city dwellers. As more Americans moved to cities, the fertility rate fell accordingly. And then there's education. The more schooling people, and particularly women, have, the lower their fertility rates. This effect has been observable for at least 200 years. It's not just about our modern university system. So as we broadened access to increasing levels of education in America across all social classes, and particularly to women, this drove the fertility rate downward too. And then there's sex, of course. In America, as in most of the Western world, there was an iron triangle linking sex, marriage, and childbearing. 
for the most part, you married before you had sex, and when you had sex, it often led to a baby. But beginning in the 1960s, a series of changes in American society broke this triangle apart. The mastery of contraception, the advent of birth control coupled with the invention of industrialized abortion, severed the link between sex and babies. With that connection gone, the link between sex and marriage fell next. And once sex outside marriage was routine, the final link of the triangle was broken, as people began to have children outside of marriage as well. Uh, None of this is meant as a value judgment. Certainly, there is both a moral and prudential case to be made that these changes have not been on the whole beneficial to society. But tonight, I would confine us to the observation that, as a matter of demographics, the combined effect of these changes has been once more to decrease the number of children that people have. These are some of the obvious, big-ticket items. Other causes of our fertility decline range from the infinitesimally small technological advances to fundamental shifts in the nation-state. I'll give you just two examples. There's the modern cult of the car seat. If you were born before 1975, chances are good that you never rode in a car seat. When your parents took you out for a drive, you either sat in your mother's or father's arms or you flopped around in the back seat. And amazingly enough, you are here to tell about it. But beginning in the late 1970s, states began passing laws mandating that all babies be confined to car seats when traveling. The laws were the particular crusade of two men in Tennessee, and after they won the battle requiring car seats in their state in 1977, the rest of the country's legislatures quickly followed suit. As those of you who are parents now know, car seat laws have greatly expanded over the years, so that today it's not just infants who need to be put into car seats, it's toddlers and big kids, too. And after they graduate from car seats, they move on to booster seats. And even after they're out of booster seats, most states do not allow them to sit in the front seat because the airbags, which keep grown-ups safe, it turns out, are quite dangerous to people (coughs) under five feet tall. Like any sweetly overprotective mother, the nanny state sees danger and death around every corner. So how does the car seat depress fertility? I would suggest that you could try fitting three car seats in the back of a typical mid-sized sedan. Uh, If you want to have more than two kids, you have to buy a bigger vehicle, one of those awful, terrible, no-good SUVs you always hear about on NPR or, heaven forbid, a minivan, uh, either of which costs about twice what you would pay for a Honda Civic. So the car seat laws wind up functioning as a tax on families with more than two children. Now, I don't mean to oversell this point. The effects of this tax are so small that they're basically invisible. Uh, I merely wish to point out that while the car seat is objectively pro-child, It is also vaguely anti-family. Other taxes, however, are not so invisible. Since Old Testament times, and possibly even before, the primary reason for having children was that they would take care of you in your dotage. That millennia-old compact was severed by the advent of Social Security. Now, to be sure, the motivations for creating Social Security were largely admirable, but when the state put itself in the position of providing financial care for the elderly, it did two things to fertility. First, you created a set of benefits to compete with the benefits derived from having children. And second, it created a moral hazard. Raising kids is expensive. Once you factor in child care, lost wages, and college tuition, an average couple will spend over $1 million on a child. But those children aren't just little bundles of joy. They are future taxpayers, and they will pay for our retirement benefits. Yet everyone in America gets Social Security, whether or not they went to the trouble and the expense of creating new taxpayers. Because of this disproportionate nature, I would argue you can also see Social Security as a tax on people who have children. During the last 40 years, as professional demographers have studied our demographic collapse, there have been two schools of thought. 
The first looked at our decline through causal models, which is to say demographers would fix on one contributing factor, like, for instance, college education or Social Security, and then run regression analyses on it in an attempt to isolate its effects. Now, at heart, this philosophical worldview is actually quite comforting because it suggests that while we might think things look grim right now, our demographic future is malleable. If we only pull this lever or push that button, we might change the trajectory of our fertility rate. Through the causal lens, fixing our demographic future is actually just a matter of making the right policy choices. But in 1986, two European demographers, Ron Lesthage and Dirk Bandica, proposed a different model. Instead of seeing our fertility decline as the product of discrete policy changes, they proposed that it might be part of a global cultural shift. And they called their model the theory of the second demographic transition. Looking at the changes which began in the West in the late 1960s, Lesthage and Vandekop proposed that a second demographic transition was occurring. The universal access to birth control, the decline of marriage, the rise of divorce and cohabitation, the waning of religion, all of these changes meant that what the demographers referred to as the bourgeois family model was giving way to something new. Where the child had pushed the family from the center of life, the individual now displaced the child. Lesthage and Vandekop proposed that modern life has evolved in such a manner as to make the individual paramount. And to the extent that people still did marry and form families, they would do so not because of the old rationales stemming from duty or piety or necessity, but for reasons of self-actualization. Of all this, Lesthage and Vandekop proposed that in the Western world, fertility rates would fall below replacement and stay there, eventually resulting in population contractions. Back here in studio with AEI adjunct fellow and Institute for Family Studies fellow Lyman Stone. Let's talk about root causes. Uh, Jonathan Last identifies a few causes of fertility declines, cultural, political, economic. Do you think that there is an underappreciated cause uh, underlying this, this whole problem, or are, are the, the main explanations sufficient uh, to account for low and declining birth rates? So I think uh, explaining birth rates is, uh, it has proved to be a challenge for people uh, in the field. That You can do these long-run explanations like Jonathan does, and he does a very good job, I think, walking through some of the theories about what's happening in the long run. Um, but short-run fluctuations turn out to be quite large and sometimes difficult to explain. So the decline that brought us from about 2.07 in 2006 uh, until to 1.92 uh, when when Jonathan uh, was writing his book um, was easy to explain, right? What happened between 2007 and 2013? Well, there was a recession. Um, the trouble has been that 2013 to today, we've had um, quite a bit of economic growth. Uh, quite an improving situation, and yet fertility has continued declining. Explaining this has been a bit more challenging. You can point to long-run things like the uh, uh, rising age of uh, of marriage, um, and he does point to that, and it's risen more since uh, since uh, he wrote. And yet, that doesn't really explain why we were at almost replacement rate fertility 12 years ago, and then we fell so much now. Uh, that there was actually an increase in fertility between the 1970s and the 2000s. So, the truth is that there's a lot that we don't know about what's driving fertility. And, and he mentions this as, uh, in a variety of contexts. But um, what, we, what it does seem like is that people who get married today at a given age uh, have a similar number of children as people who got married at that age uh, 20 years ago. Um, now, not if you go back 50 years. 
Um, but the decline from 20 years ago, which was from about 2.07 to today, 1.72, seems to be largely about marriage. Though it's hard to say exactly why that is so. One of the major explanations uh, that I've seen for continued declines in fertility is the marked decline in teen pregnancy uh, that we've seen over the last few years. And this is a bit of a, a tricky topic, obviously, uh, because there were concerted efforts in city, state, federal governments uh, to lower rates of teen pregnancy. I imagine that you would contend that that does not account for uh, the entirety of the continued decline. How do we balance a desirable outcome like lower rates of teen pregnancy with an undesirable one like low fertility rates overall? So low fertility or declining fertility among teens accounts for a lot of uh, reduced births between 1990 and 2005 or so. But by the time you get to 2005, 2006, 2007, teen birth rates are quite low. They don't explain much of the decline since then. And again, if we were at fertility rates of 2006, 2007, I'd be a happy man. That's about 2.06, 2.07. It's just a hair below replacement. But you know what? This this is decent. Um, But uh, so the decline since then is mostly not about teen fertility. We've seen declines among women in their 20s. We've seen declines among women in their 30s. Uh, the only group still posting a uh, consistent increase in birth rates is women in their 40s. Uh, and they're starting from a very low base in terms of uh, the absolute amount of children being born. Which is to say, yes, falling teen birth rates had a role to play here. But in the recent period that, that I'm really concerned with, this very sudden decline of the last 10 years, uh, they're really not uh, not a major driver of what we're seeing. Let's wade into some slightly more controversial territory. Barely. Barely more controversial. Uh, Jonathan Last points to what he calls the triangle, the iron triangle of marriage and sex and childbearing. Uh, and that with the advent of birth control and industrialized abortion, that the connection between sex and childbearing was severed. And then, in my view, he elides a bit of a, a major point, which is that then the connection between marriage and childbearing uh, kind of melted away. How do you see that working causally? Do you agree with him? And is that really a, a big part of the story? Cultural values matter. Uh, they are important. Uh, there's tons of research identifying different cultural values that seem to be really important. Uh, however, pinning down exact ones in a present context is very difficult. Uh, we tend to have a limited ability to really figure out what's happening in our immediate surroundings. That is to say, hindsight helps clarify. How much have norms about sex and marriage contributed to falling fertility? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, Fertility, again, it rose between 1970 and 2007. So did we get more marriage-minded during that period? I mean, maybe. But uh, that's kind of an odd story. Um, Now, he does point to uh, that a lot of that was uh, fertility among immigrants, Uh, But if you go back to the uh, first half of the 20th century, a lot of that fertility was among immigrants. It's not like that's a new thing. So so I think that, again, culture is clearly important. There's so many places we can point to that culture matters. But was there a specific idea about marriage that lowered lowered birth rates? I mean, there was just a study out uh, today uh, as of this recording 
in the National Bureau of Economic Research uh, that looked at specifically legal aid services provided through the expansion of welfare in the 1960s and 70s. And they found that it did increase non-marital childbearing, but only because it reduced marriage. It didn't actually increase total childbearing, right? So this would be a case where you'd say, man, this, uh, the increase of legal aid services and liberalized divorce clearly increased divorce. It reduced, it, it attacked one of these corners of the triangle that he's describing with marriage, but that actually didn't impact birth rates. It impacted what kind of family they were born into, but but not the actual uh, absolute rate. So this is a case where we had a clear cultural norm that if it was really, in, so to speak, an iron triangle, it should have had this effect. So it looks like what it really is is sort of like a like a rubber triangle. It sort of has some flex in it, right? The, the points can can shift around a little bit. Let's hone in on particular cultures, specifically religious cultures. Is there good correlation between secularization generally and low fertility is a great awakening the the answer to uh yes to it's, it's always the answer uh no i more seriously uh in virtually every cultural context for as far back as we can keep records religiosity does seem to predict uh, higher birth rates and it actually hardly matters what the religion is so there's these stereotypes right that like catholics have lots of babies and protestants don't um, and yet, when you actually look at 19th century fertility uh, data as we can reconstruct it, it turns out that fertility rates in uh, economically similar Protestant and Catholic populations are very similar, right? Uh, today, uh, when you look around the world, uh, more religious places do tend to have higher fertility. And within a given society, more religious people have higher fertility. Um, and, it, and it does seem that it's causal. Uh, it seems like being religious makes you more likely to uh, have babies. Um, however, there is also causality the other way. That is that having having babies tends to uh, make people more religious in terms of behavior, uh, but also to some extent in terms of self-identification. Um, so it's sort of a causal loop where we say, yeah, I mean, religion is, imp- is an important part of uh, of high fertility, um, it definitely seems associated. It seems causal. Now there's a causal loop, but it is part of it. Now at the same time, you get a situation sometimes where you say, well, it's the religion, but then something happens to make you wonder if it's really not. So if we take the case of Israel, ultra-Orthodox Jews have very high fertility and yet secular Jews in Israel also have among the highest fertility rates in the developed world. So is it the religion or is it something else? Is it some sort of connection to a community generally? So there's a lot of work suggesting that it might not so much be religiosity as a sense of connection to some kind of uh, what a, what sociologists might call a transcendent identity, um, something that's bigger than you in time and space. Perhaps a renewed sense of the American project uh, then will, would, be, uh, would be something of an answer. We'll let Jonathan last discuss that, and Lyman and I will be back in just a few minutes. Let's hand you off to the 2013 lecture, What to Expect When No One's Expecting. Ideal fertility is the number of children people say they would, in a perfect world, like to have. In America, the ideal fertility average is about 2.5, a figure which has been constant for two generations. Now, we don't hit our ideal number here. We haven't actually reached it since the days of the baby boom. But what's important is that our ideal number is above the replacement rate. In 2001, demographers were shocked to find that in two European countries, Austria and Germany, the ideal fertility rate had fallen to 1.7. No one had ever seen this before. 
and no one quite understood how it came to be. It's one thing for society to lack the willpower to actually go about replacing itself. It's another thing entirely to lack even the abstract desire. Searching for an explanation, people noticed that Germany and Austria had been the first European countries to fall below replacement. And so a disturbing hypothesis was formed. What if people derived their ideas about ideal family size, not through objective notions, but by looking around and intuiting the societal norms? In a country with very few babies, young people might well observe that the childless world around them isn't so bad and think that maybe in an ideal world they shouldn't want children either. Now, so far this hypothesis has actually strengthened in support. Other European countries have begun to see their ideal fertility numbers tick downward and join the Teutons below the replacement mark, and some Asian countries have as well. If this hypothesis is correct, it means that as Americans get used to living in a country with fewer and fewer children, they could eventually adjust their ideals downward too. In 2008, an Austrian demographer, Vigard Skrbeck, looked at more than 900 population data sets going back 700 years. What he found is that as a socioeconomic matter, fertility has always and everywhere been an aspirational behavior. The idea is that the lower classes are following the behaviors of the elites. Now, the global fertility collapse that we see today was in fact begun by Western elites in response to changes in modern life, which incentivized not having children. First, the wealthy, educated classes cut back on having children, and then the lower classes do too. And the lower classes aren't wrong, because where children were once a marker of social success, they are now an impediment. This dynamic is literally anti-Darwinian. Here in America, both the left and the right have their own preferred ideas. Our liberal friends often contend that the only way out of our problem is to create a state-sponsored network of childcare facilities in order to liberate mothers to work outside the home. They point to the relative success of France and the Scandinavian countries who have embraced such policies. I would argue that this is probably a false hope. Uh, for starters, fertility rates in Scandinavia are even lower than they are here in the United States. And France's relatively robust fertility, which is still also below replacement, is due entirely to the fecundity of its African immigrant population. Even with France's wonderful daycare facilities, French natives have a fertility rate indistinguishable from the American middle class. Now, a great deal of research has been done on the question of whether or not state spending helps fertility. And the evidence shows that the effects are, at best, marginal. Summarizing all of this research, the Norwegian demographer Jan Holm posited that fertility is best seen as a systemic outcome, depending on broader societal attributes and culture, and less on the presence and detailed construction of monetary benefits. Now, on the other side of the political spectrum, our conservative friends often point to the need for the state to be aggressively natalist, that the ability of government policy to raise fertility is extremely limited. We are going to undertake natalist policy efforts on their own merits because we believe that they are a right expression of our societal interests, then that's one thing. But we should do so with our eyes open to the fact that the effects are likely to be marginal at best. So. What do we do? Uh, instead of pretending that I have actual solutions, because I don't, uh, I would suggest two guiding principles for how we think about pronatalist policy. The first is that you cannot bribe people into having children they do not want, and that's because people aren't stupid. Uh, you'll recall that a child costs something like a million dollars to raise, and what do you get for that money? You get miserable. No, really, uh, an enormous amount of research has been done of the effects of children on people's happiness. The results are just about unanimous. You take identical people with any demographic markers you like, same race, income, church attendance, 
and the person with a child will be, on average, six percentage points less happy. That is for the first bundle of joy. Each additional child lops off another two points. <laughs> the second precept is that we should hold to is that if the government is going to try to foster fertility, the government must be in it for the long haul. Countries that flit from one policy to another often see their fertility rates decline in the face of their efforts. The best lesson, I would posit, to be gleaned from the minor successes in France and Scandinavia is that those countries have been making a sustained effort to boost fertility since the First World War. Remember that study I mentioned a few moments ago about every 25% increase in spending resulting in just a 0.6% increase in the fertility rate? Well, that was the short term. In the long term, the fertility rate increases all the way up to 4%. Now, that's still a pretty paltry return on investment, but it does suggest that you can have some success if your policies demonstrate that what you're doing is attempting to reshape the culture itself. And this, finally, is where our hope must lie, because the culture is everything. Now, I don't mean the culture in the pedestrian ideological sense. Conservatives are correct when they talk about the train wreck that the sexual revolution has created in modern life. And liberals, frankly, are correct when they claim that despite the free market's many, many advantages, it is at best indifferent to family life. But these liberal and conservative cultural critiques are really second-order concerns. Because at its heart, the fundamental cultural question is this. Do we care about ideas or a future beyond ourselves? A few years ago, the writer Jennifer Senior caused a small sensation with a piece about parenthood in New York Magazine. It was titled, All Joy and No Fun. After reading it, a friend of mine with two small children muttered to me, ah, she's got it half right. Uh, <laughs> Senior's point was that parenthood today isn't fun, but that it probably never has been. Yet we are at a unique moment in history where fun has become one of the organizing principles of the human condition. I would suggest that this is supremely unhealthy, which is why our great cultural hope is probably religion. In America, there used to be a big demographic gap between Catholics who had lots and lots and lots of children and Protestants and Jews who had relatively fewer children. Today, that gap has disappeared. The real distinction is between go, those who go to church and those who do not. Regardless of what that church teaches, the fertility rate increases in a straight line with attendance. Mormon, Muslim, Protestant, Catholic, Jew, the people who attended services once a week have a fertility rate well above the replacement rate. Now, this fact does not thrill some of our friends on the secular left, but I would argue that it should, because what it shows is that while you cannot bribe people into having the children they do not want, you can argue them into wanting children. The key is that they must believe in something bigger than themselves, whether it is God or America or even, I suppose, secular humanism. Uh, a number of years ago, before he became pope, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger remarked that in the modern world, children were perceived as a threat to the present, as if they were taking something away from our lives. They were seen, he explained, as a liability rather than a source of hope. But of course, children are a liability to the present. At its deepest core, the problem of modernity is that it has pushed the present so fully into the center of human consciousness that it has become difficult to either appreciate the lessons of the past which came before us or to anticipate a hope for the future that will come after us. I believe that this is the philosophical axis around which nearly all of our demographic problems rotate. 
And if we're going to have anyone to leave America too, we're not going to do it simply by building daycare centers or crafting a smarter tax code. We're going to have to solve this fundamental problem of modernity itself, or else we're doomed. Back in studio with demographer Lyman Stone, let's turn to policy questions for a second. We've talked about causes and culture, and now we're going to look to the government for some answers. Uh, <laughs> as one should always do. As we do here at AES. <laughs> uh, it, is, it is a public policy thing, I think, after all. Uh, let's talk about the, the child tax credit and other uh, carrots, so to speak, uh, for Americans to have more children. What kind of evidence do we have that those are working or not working? The tax reform bill that uh, that became law a little more than a year ago, a little less than a year ago, a lot of time flies, expanded the refundable portion of the child tax credit. What do we think of that? Uh, is there a way more room for more expenditures through the tax code what's uh, what's the landscape there so i think there's there's two different questions there there's a question about um is there any possible policy which might impact birth rates and there's a separate separate question about sort of down to brass tax what can we do in america so that first question is is there anything that works um, and there's a lot of research on this uh, and in the lecture jonathan uh, says uh, that nothing works um, He's I disagree. Profit with him. of doom, after right, all. Right, right, right. I disagree with him. Now he says if you increase spending by twenty five percent, you get 0.4 percent higher fertility. Well, that's on the low end of estimates, but beyond that, that's pretty good. Like 0.4 percent higher fertility is like tens of thousands of extra children. That's in, in some cases hundreds of thousands, right? Um, and if you uh, and if if that is and that is in fact on the very low end of estimates, if you look at the case of Australia where they instituted a fairly reasonably sized baby bonus um, uh, that is just a big cash check you get when you have a baby, uh, it increased their fertility rates by between 0.1 and 0.2 kids per woman. A uh, similar thing happened in Quebec when Quebec instituted a baby bonus um, several decades ago, and they instituted it for a limited period of time, which means we can study what happened when it was implemented and when it was removed in a long time horizon. So it's a very good study. Um, we see that it increased fertility rates while it, while it was there by about 0.1 kids per woman or so. These are non-trivial changes. Um, so there is policy space. Now, that said, it's expensive. Uh, the cheapest estimates are that to get one extra child who would not have been born, you're going to spend about a hundred thousand bucks, uh, because most of that money, most of the money for a child program is going to kids who would have been born anyway, right? Um, and if you take more pessimistic estimates, it could be a million bucks per kid, right? Um, which is to say, you know, you give, let's say you give 5,000 bucks to every child who's born. That means for every like 50 kids who are born, you'll get like one extra kid who would not have been born without the program. So there are real effects, but they do cost a lot of money. So then that brings to this next question. What can we really do? And a lot of people are very interested in child allowances, child tax credits. I prefer to call it a parenting wage, um, but whatever you want to call it, there's interest in this. I'm I'm all for it. Great. Let's uh, let's increase direct financial support for uh, for families. I don't really care how it's administered, tax benefit, whatever it is. Um, but what I think might be even more important than that is dealing with places where the government already has its thumb on the scales against families. Um, and particularly, this means marriage penalties in taxes and welfare. So if you get the earned income tax credit, 
and you're not married, it's way more generous than if you're married, even if getting married has no change on your income. That same thing occurs in almost every means-tested program we have. The result is that working-class families can face losses of five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars $15,000 just for getting married. That's a problem. If, if a lot of fertility decline is explained by postponed marriage, and if postponed marriage or not getting married at all is largely a working class phenomenon, and it is, more educated people continue to get married as they always have, uh, then we should ask why are working class people not getting married? And it may be because as we have expanded the welfare state, we've also expanded the size of marriage penalties, which discourages marriage and ultimately reduces fertility. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but babies, capitalism, optimism, Sounds good to me. Sounds good to me. Lyman Stone, thank you so much for joining us on the Bradley Lectures Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Bradley Lectures Podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. The Bradley Lectures were given for more than a quarter century at AEI thanks to the generous sponsorship of the Lyndon and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI Senior Fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope you enjoy our revival of these lectures. If you do, please show your support by giving us a like and a comment and subscribing to our channel. And stay tuned for new episodes every other Monday as we bring the wisdom of the recent past to the most pressing issues of the present. Thanks for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast.